of all the conversations we've had on the Culture Laser, the one we did with Joe Clifford about two years ago uh, remains uh, one of the most honest and candid and interesting conversations we've had. Um, it's a really fantastic one, and it's a pleasure to be able to share it again with you. Joe Clifford, for those who don't know, um, is an amazing playwright uh, and an actor. She's done a load of things. She's had a really varied career, um, and you're going to hear all about it in this conversation, so I won't spoil it for you. Since doing this interview, her play, uh, The Gospel According to Jesus, Queen of Heaven, won great critical acclaim during the 2014 Edinburgh Fringe. And in 2015, uh, she's going to be coming again to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival as part of the Made in Scotland program. You can look forward to getting tickets for that in August 2015. Uh, so with that in mind, let's listen in to our conversation uh, with the great Joe Clifford. Multicolor cultural laser. We travel the world for the boys and the girls. Casting parts of wonder and amazement. Multicolor cultural laser. Hi, I'm Joe Clifford. I'm talking from the uh, the study where I write my plays. And you're a playwright and a performer. Uh, Doctor, got my PhDs on 17th century Spanish drama, the theatre of Calderón de la Barca. Golden Age theatre, which happened at the same time as Shakespeare, um, happened in theatres very much like Shakespearean theatres. They were outdoors, poetic theatre. It happened through words, through very passionate performance. But uh, in many respects, it was better than Shakespearean theatre because they could use women, they could use actresses. And so you get, uh, in Calderón in particular, get these fantastic parts for women. And it was through translating Calderón that I discovered when I was 30 that I was a playwright. So it was my very, very first play, which was put on in the Fringe in 1980, was a translation of Cascón dos Puertas, Mala es de Guardar, Has for Two Doors by Calderón de la Barca, and it did rubbish business. You know, there were about eight people, I, I guess, uh, in the performance, uh, in the average performance, but the people who turned up laughed. And I was there with my newly born daughter on in a sling and I was incredibly proud of my daughter I was incredibly proud of my play and when I heard people laughing I knew that I had to become a playwright and uh, when I started to to write plays my, the, the first success I had was set in Spain it was set in, in the golden age of Spain in the in the seven, early 17th century Spain and it was profoundly profoundly influenced by golden age Spanish plays and you know if we kind of fast forward till about 1999 or something like that I had a very big hit on in the international festival not on the fringe anymore with uh, my translation of Life is a Dream La Vida Sueño the translation of, of, of works from the Spanish has been incredibly important to me. Do you find yourself needing to go back to that kind of original text or going back to that language to get something for your own work? I, I'm kind of mercenary. I, I, I do what I'm paid to do. <laughs> and the fact is, at, at the moment, nobody is paying me to translate Spanish plays. I, I don't know why. It's bloody stupid of them. But, um, but there we are. Nobody's paying me. And so I'm not going back to it. I love it. I absolutely absolutely love it but um so it was the act of the audience response to the play that got you hooked on playwriting rather than the act of translation would you say or was it it was watching an audience laugh at my jokes listening to them hearing them just just watching the pleasure they took uh that's that's what got me into playwriting yeah conversely would it also be true then if they don't laugh 
it's so destroying. <laughs> People do laugh when they're supposed to, and if they, you know, if they don't laugh, they're crying. I mean, there's, I had a play on in the Lyceum not so long ago called Everyone, in which there was complete silence in the theatre. You could, and then every now and again you'd hear somebody in another pun. Yeah, and people people were crying. Down in London at the moment, in my uh, great expectations, there is the most incredible silence in the theatre because people are so engrossed by the power of the story. And at the very end, you know, the curtain comes down, the theatre is dark. There is often a moment of really profound silence because people are unwilling to break the spell they've been in by the by the applause. And then... That sense of being in a room with four or five hundred people who are all listening intensely is just unbelievably satisfying. Of course, it's even better now that I'm discovering myself as a performer to be creating that silence. That is just the best feeling. Did you, have you only started performing recently? I didn't realize that. Uh, yes, yes, very recently. Um, what happened was that way, way back when I was at school, so when I was 14 or 15, I got asked to act in the, in, you know, in plays in school. And it was a single sex, it was a boys' public school, and I always got asked to do the girls' parts. And two things happened. One was that I just adored being in the rehearsal room. I just loved that, and I loved working on the text, and I loved working with my fellow actors and just practicing and rehearsing. I'd, I adored that, and I felt I really belonged. I, I hated the rest of the school, but that was one space where I felt safe and where I felt I belonged. But I also loved being a girl. I loved the clothes. I loved the makeup. When I was in costume, I just felt so alive and and that was how i discovered that i was transsexual that's what i mean i say i was i i couldn't discover i was transsexual because at those in those days words like transsexual literally did not exist i mean who i i, I discovered i would be happier being a girl um and i was oh, i was so i was profoundly frightened i was profoundly ashamed um, I was terrified that if people found out they would hate me uh, and despise me and my life would be made a complete misery because the school operated through bullying. There was very intensive psychological, emotional bullying going on in the school. Now, this was in the 60s. There was no help available of any kind. I, I could talk to nobody about this. Uh, all I could do was try to suppress the female side of my personality and live as a normal boy. But I wanted to keep on acting because I loved it. But when I went for male parts, I couldn't act. I was too shy, I was too embarrassed, I was too ashamed, I was too inhibited. And so theatre became a place of terror and shame. One reason why, uh, I, I told you earlier that it, you know, I was 30 when I discovered I was a playwright. Well, that took me 15 years to get through, to recover from the trauma that was associated with that really terrifying experience and to rediscover my place in the theatre which is of course where I belonged all along I mean that was that was my when I, when I when I said I you know I loved being in the rehearsal room like that's because I'd found my spiritual and artistic home and yet the shame and the the trauma of being transsexual denied me and and actually very nearly destroyed me and then what happened over the years I you know I I, I became a playwright and uh, I wrote masses and masses because you know I was trying to earn money I was trying to bring up my children and it kind of occurred to me that 
What was happening when I wrote was that I was identifying, and as, as I still do, totally and passionately with the character, and I was living through their experience and feeling what they felt. And that was very important. That was a crucial guide. That's how I know that the words are right. But at the same time, I was, in my imagination, I was being the actor or the actress on stage playing the part. And it was through my really strong instincts as a performer that I knew the words were right. That's how I could write good words for the stage. And I went, wow, <laughs> how amazing is that? So clearly, clearly, you know, I'm doing these two things at once. And that's, whoa, that was very exciting. And then, you know, I mean, I, my, my, my work has a very distinctive feel to it. It's, it's very different from other people's work. And I, you know, and people said, oh, that's because you immersed yourself in Spanish golden age drama when you were, you know, in, in your 20s. And I went, oh, yeah, it's obviously because I'm influenced by that. It, it occurred to me that actually, no, it was because I'm transsexual. It's, it's, you know, it's because I'm not a male playwright and I'm not a female playwright. I'm a transsexual woman playwright. And that gives me my voice. And then something else started to happen because from my, you know, late 40s onwards, I started more and more to come out as a transsexual. And until gradually, I, you know, I transitioned and, and, and um, well, this is, this is who I am. I'm a woman. As that happened, I found myself being drawn more and more to performing, not just in my imagination, but on a, you know, on the real, on the real stage. And so, yeah, it is quite, it is very recent. Oh my God, I love it. <laughs> but, you know, it's kind of amazing. So here I am in my early 60s, discovering myself as a, as an actor. And wow, how, how fantastic is that? Through that process of changing, did you ever worry that this, you know, as a, that as a playwright, that because of that empathy that you were able to have and the kind of frustrations of dealing, using art to deal with your day-to-day -day life, did you worry as you were kind of getting more comfortable with yourself, that that was somehow going to affect your produ artistic production in a negative way. Because, you know, like the people who won't go to, say, therapy, yeah, yeah. they won't fix themselves because they're like, well, you know, that's going to ruin my poem. That's a really stupid, self-destructive thing. You have, to, you have to move forward. You have to heal yourself. And I think my work has got infinitely better since I transitioned. That play I mentioned, Everyone, is... God, that's just an amazing play. And then the, the last play I had on in the Traverse, Tree of Knowledge. Well, I mean, that was immensely successful. That, that you know, they that had that sold 95% of its tickets. I mean, you know, that did really, really well. And it's because, you know, somehow I've got in touch with my whole self. And, of course, I was terrified. I mean, it's a terrifying process, transitioning, because... You know, I had my male identity, and uh, I was John, and John had done really well in life. John Clifford did really well. I'm really proud of John Clifford. You know, I'd, I had a very successful marriage for 33 years. I brought up two beautiful daughters. My dream of becoming a writer came true. I was a professional playwright. I was very successful as a as an academic. I'd become professor. And okay, John was really unhappy <laughs> and, and, and ill at ease in his body and, you know, in, and, and, and with the world in general and still pretty shy and kind of awkward with people. But, wow, you know, that was, that, was, that was an unhappiness that I knew, that I knew I could deal with. What would happen when John became Joe or Johanna? <gasps> wow, well, that was a step completely into the unknown and of course you know quite apart from the whole stuff of when you start transitioning and you go out into the world and people read you as a transsexual and they shout abuse at you or they laugh in your face or they're generally vile and prejudiced in their behavior towards you which is a you know that can easily make you scared to go out your front door so there's a real struggle there but 
beyond all that, who was I? And it was a, yeah, it's a real step into the unknown. But then the whole process of growing as a human being is a step into the unknown. We just don't know. We just don't know. And isn't, isn't that fantastic? <laughs> isn't that exciting? I read somewhere where you talk, we were talking about the abuse, say, if you go out on the street, these kind of things. And you said the male role is changing, and we don't know what to do with it, and therefore that leads to this abuse that, that uh, transsexual people or transgendered people are feeling as part of their daily lives. Do you think, um, had, had the roles been more porous, would you have had such a, a rough time of it as as John. Clearly, the, 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 one of the things that saved my life as John was the discovery, when I was still 17, of the two spirit people of the, of the uh, Native American Indians um, and to discover that there are, that there always have been throughout recorded history societies in which people like myself have been honoured and respected, in which the third or societies in which the three genders or four genders or five genders or even more which is a much more accurate uh, description of the whole spectrum of human gender and it's just unfortunate that here in the west we've inherited this very rigid tradition that is just says there's two genders as male and female and it's it's inaccurate it's not true it's not true of human experience every time i speak in public generally somebody comes up to me afterwards and they talk about their unhappiness of being trapped either as a male or being trapped as a female it causes huge huge suffering and there's many many people in this world many more than than ever come to light who feel uncertain you know, in a fundamental way as, as to who they are. Or they feel inadequate as men or they feel inadequate as women. And this causes great fear and suffering. And when they see somebody like myself, then it triggers this fear and this suffering and, and this rage. And so that's one cause of it. The other cause of it, of course, is that we live in a profoundly misogynistic world. We live in a world in which uh, women are generally despised um, and looked down on and feared. Uh, and this this is all happening largely below conscious awareness but it you know again it's 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 there and i can remember once when i was in a very early stage of transitioning somebody somebody drunk stopped me in the street and he said oh excuse me madam he said uh and he was going to ask for money obviously but there was a guy with him who whispered something in his ear and then his face whole face changed and he started to apologize and he said oh i'm so sorry sir he said i'm so sorry uh i've, I've i'm so sorry for insulting you you should you should be able to kick me in the ass that and, it, and I thought, what, what, what's it going on about? And then I realized that this, in his terms, he had taken me for a woman and he had addressed me as a woman and he had insulted me. And that to do that was kind of like the worst insult that, that a man can can pay another man. Yeah. And that, so what, 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 what I was seeing was a misogyny that underpins so much of our society and that I had actually internalized myself which is why for so many years I've been so frightened and so ashamed. And that's the very wonderful thing about, about transitioning and, and about being a, being a transsexual is that you just learn so much about the world that is not, not available to, to, a, to, a, to a, and, and, and nowadays when I meet a, a man, generally, you know, of a certain age, late middle age, and they start to address me, then it's usually very friendly, but there's always a kind of, element of condescension in it there's a kind of element as if I was some sort of kind of somebody a bit half-witted 
somebody a bit stupid, somebody that can, can't really look after themselves. Uh, I think, oh yeah, well they're they're taking me for a, for for a woman in late middle age. And of course, you know, a bit of me is furious. <laughs> but but another bit of me is going, wow, isn't that interesting? And so you say so you you know you learn things that way. Right, a woman in late middle age is yeah, it's invisible. Just, it's just uh, invisible nobody in, in in terms of 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 the society. Yeah. So I take a great deal of pleasure in trying to be visible. <laughs> but you know, visible in a good way. And is home in Duddingston on Sunday. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, in front of a thousand people being an angel. Fab! How great is that? And being a transsexual angel, an openly transsexual angel. And that it means a huge amount to me because, of course, when I did my show, The Gospel According to Jesus, Queen of Heaven, in oh, whenever that was, 2009, Christians were protesting outside the theatre. Hundreds of them. Hundreds of them. And they had placards that said, God says... My son is not a pervert. Oh, imagine that. And when when they were challenged and, and people said to them, but hang on, you know, why is the cross about this play? You don't know the first thing about it. You've never seen it. You've never read it. You don't know it. They would say, you don't have to go near a sewer to know that it stinks. Uh, but of course, I, you know, I'm a Christian. I go to church. I mean, this is the kind of paradox of it all. The gospel according to Jesus, Queen of Heaven, is a profoundly spiritual play. And uh, so it's great. So it's great to be... You know this, and this passion play is organised by the Church of Scotland. It's, you know, it's a very straight, it's a very straight <laughs> event, and it's fab to be a transsexual angel in the middle of it all. It's brilliant. Well, that's off to the Church of Scotland, man. Well, yeah, the Church of Scotland is in many respects, you know, it's, in many respects it's bloody awful, but in many respects it's very wonderful, and it certainly has some amazing and wonderful people working in, within it. And maybe this ties into the idea of... Um, Teatro del Mundo. You know, I'm always curious about artists' notion of responsibility, and, and I think you have a pretty strong yeah, sense uh, of responsibility. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, I have a huge sense of responsibility. I think that um, theatre is a, is, a, is a power. Theatre affects people profoundly. And... And I want it to be a force for good. I do not want, you know, my plays to simply reflect the anguish and the fear that there is around in the world just now and the rage. I want them to be positive. I want them to give pleasure and I want people to come out of seeing one of my plays feeling empowered and reinforced and maybe even comforted. Who knows? Now, this is kind of really unfashionable <laughs> because th most plays... You know, the plays that the establishment, that you know, the plays that are praised by the critics are praised for their bleakness and, the, you know, all that crap. And um, I think that's wrong. You know, we have, a, we have a responsibility and we have a responsibility to do more than simply reflect back our own unhappiness to the world. It's very, very crucial to me, um, and particularly in in these times. And I, I you know, when I, when it came to setting up my website, I called it Teatro del Mundo, Theatre of the World, because you know I want to write theatre for the world. You know, I want it to be global. I'm, I'm nothing if not ambitious, and because we are living through a time of dissolution. This is like the the kind of it's is like the equivalent of the end of the Middle Ages. We're living through a time in which a, a social order, you know, which has served its function very well, is now being shown to be wanting. And capitalism, you know, is not working for us. We have to find different and better ways of organising ourselves. Um, the roles of men and women are changing because that you know they don't they don't they don't work anymore. Very, very crucial function of art is to dream the future, to dream the future into being, to try to at least imagine different ways of being. And so the, you know, my aesthetic is hopefully <laughs> based on 
positive notions of what it is, what it means to be a human being. Theatre is not about conflict. Theatre is about the search for wholeness. Theatre is about love. Theatre is about joy. Theatre is about pleasure. Theatre is about a hell of a lot more than, you know, the the the, the uh, contemporary ways that it's thought about. But I, I wonder what, because you've said that theatre is more important now, perhaps, yeah. than before, and I wonder what it is you think theatre offers that other types of art form can't. What can it do? And I, and I, I think I have my own idea, but I don't. Okay, well, I think, I think there's, there's, there's a whole load of things. I mean, the art, art forms like uh, oh, cinema and uh, television, these are heavily censored, so it's very tricky to get past the censorship that exists. How do you mean censorship? Because I think people wouldn't necessarily consider TV well, or film well, censored. I mean, because everybody lives under the illusion that we live in a free society, but of course we don't live in a free society. We live in a very highly regulated society, and what gets seen is regulated. It's just not regulated by a, you know some sort of general in an office with a blue pencil. It's generated by the market. And clearly, when you have to raise millions and millions to make a film, people that put up those millions want to have control over the content because they want to get their money back and so of course they control the content um gosh television i mean if you've ever tried to get a, a, something on television then again it's very very tightly regulated and the the point if you if you think about a film what is a film it's a it's a commodity it, you know you end up with something on a disc nowadays that can be bought and sold and exchanged and is, is commodified um, the same is true of a book and, and you know that's one reason why capitalism is very much more at ease marketing this kind of product theater it kind of whoa, well well theater has big uh, economic problems because it's so labor intensive and a capital intensive world but the other thing about theater is that theater is about people living people coming into um contact with each other so it's about a, it's about a living event that is not a commodity it's something that that happens and then passes and moves on it's alive it's being created just as actually you know i mean there's what, what what's happening between us now well there's this there's my voice that is going on you know there's going on going into this funny machine that is then going to go be transmitted in a you know as a commodity although you're giving it away for free but it, there's someone else happening between us that has to do with the encounter between us with the fact that we're looking into each other's eyes at this moment the fact of you know your presence and my presence and all that oh well all that communication that is going on between us that is going on beneath the level of words do you know what i mean yeah, 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 yeah. I'm nodding my head yeah yeah well, yeah yeah but it's but it's more than that it's kind of whatever whatever that i mean you can't even really talk about it and, and maybe something of the essence of that is being recorded in some mysterious way by this machine which is part of what makes this conversation interesting to people but of course theater oh, theater generally can't record it whatever happens on a stage is never you know it's as i remember saying in one of my plays what is going to happen tonight has never happened before and it will never happen again I mean, essentially, it's it's, it's transcendental. You, it doesn't have a physical thing. It's it's of the it's very much of the moment. I just had a great experience recently where I was hanging out with a bunch of poets, and you know, we did a little reading, and nobody, for, you know, all day we were because we were in uh, Iraq, so we were you know taking pictures of everything, you know, and then we all sat down together for in the evening time, had a few drinks, and did a reading. Nobody took a picture. No. Nobody photographed it. And somebody said, you know, oh, it's a shame we don't have any... And I was like, no, it's fantastic we don't have any documentation. Absolutely, because that's the whole point of it. And it's very, it's very paradoxical and very strange, because uh, that's the wonderful thing about a poetry reading, that it, poor, 
something happens. But the memory, you know, the memory is okay. great. And you can't package up a theater, that thing. Even, and so what I was going to say was, even when it's being beamed, say, like, The Great Expectations, yeah, which yeah. you did, how does that feel then to have that sent to 500 theaters around? Well, you see, I mean, that's incredibly important. But, I mean, and, and theater should have got, in, got onto this years ago. I mean, it's madness that it... It's only happened now because that means it can reach out because, because that's a great thing about mass reproduction. You can reach hundreds and thousands of people that you just can't reach in a theatre. Of course, you sacrifice. <laughs> you make a sacrifice. But at the same time, something happens. And I'm, I'm really proud of that transmission. It's just a very beautiful piece of work. You know, hopefully it means that people see, will see that and they'll want to make the play themselves. They want to make it happen. Theatre is crazy, the way it's run. I had a big hit in 1985. I was kind of encouraged. I was allowed to write new plays, original plays, till about 1991. And then I became unfashionable. You know, nobody, nobody commissioned new work from me right the way through till about 2008, 2009. Because there is a constant demand for the new young playwright you know but the minute you know this new young playwright in this case myself really really began to understand the craft of playwriting and began to be good at it that was exactly the moment when I got dropped by the you know dropped by theater I mean literally dropped I was very very lucky that I was able to adapt novels and I've made I you know I regard all my adaptations as actually they're my work you know I mean great expectations is my Great expectations. No one else could have written it. Anna Karenina is my Anna Karenina. Do you know, no one else could have done it like that. No one else could have done Faust like that. And I, you know, in a way, and if you think about Shakespeare, and this is really, really presumptuous of me, but if you think about Shakespeare, all his works were what we would now call adaptations. You know, he took his characters and he took his stories from other people uh, and he made them his own. And I, so I regard, you know, these these play, these are my plays. I'm incredibly proud of them. Because is that because you put so much of yourself into it? I mean, especially with Faust. Faust wasn't it was extraordinary. Well, you, well, you know, Faust. I mean, Goethe was writing Faust for forty years. I don't know, a very very long time. Uh, and although it's written as if it was a play, it's actually unstageable. You know, uh, particularly Faust Part Two, and Faust Part Two, very very interestingly, he wouldn't let anybody see. When he, when he sort of finally finished it, he locked it up in a chest with instructions that no one was to open that until after he died. And what what is incredible about Fast Part 2 is that it is... Fast Part 1 is kind of quite conventional in the sense that the female character gets gets destroyed, gets killed, uh, which is really common, <laughs> really common in 18th and 19th century art. Um, it's about killing the woman. Uh, but Faust Part Two is about the exaltation of the feminine, and the final words are, it's through the woman that the world is set free. So it was a perfect vehicle for me, because I was writing, working on Faust, during the time that my uh, wife was dying of a brain tumour, and then after her death, as I was becoming a woman. And so the, and there's a poet in both my version of Faust Part One and Faust Part Two, Faust Part One, the poet is a man in Fast Part Two. The poet is a woman, and this is a <laughs> this is exactly what was happening in my life at the time. The fact that it is unstageable meant that I had a whole degree of freedom to really turn it into my own Faust, and I was very free, particularly with Part Two. 
but at the same time very faithful to the spirit of the original because this is one of the world's great masterpieces. You know, when you're thinking about adaptation, I guess, that, and, and ownership of these adaptations, yeah. it feels like these adaptations are going to have a broader audience than perhaps your original, uh, maybe slightly more autobiographical work. And I think that to me sounds like it's doing something to a really wide audience that's kind of amazing, which is offering a way for people to understand and empathize with people they wouldn't meet in their daily life. And it's that meeting and encountering people, which I think is why the theater is so important and those kind of communities and relationships are important. Do you feel the same? No, absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right. That is, that is why theater is important. But I would say, I mean, Faust is Goethe's, but it's mine, and it's incredibly intensely autobiographical. Even Great Expectations, you know, and I mean, the reason why, you know, Great Expectations is on the West End has got nothing to do with me. It's because it's Dickens, you know. But at the same time, it is mine. It is mine, and it is about my life, because I so passionately and so totally identified with Pip and with Miss Havisham and with Estella and with all these characters when I was writing. It's a story of abuse. Well... Yeah, you know, I was abused as a child, emotionally abused, and it's a story of somebody trying to come to terms with the past. Well, wow, yeah, guess what I've been doing, <laughs> you know, trying to come to terms with my past. And and uh, all these plays are self-portraits, yeah. And even even when I take the, take the stories and I take the characters from other people. Do you ever find, is there any characters that you've, that have resisted your ability to get inside them? Some people are very difficult because, a bit like an old, an old-fashioned radio set, sometimes a character is like that because what the character is doing is just so horrifying. You know, I feel a resistance. I don't, I don't, I don't want to feel these things. But of course, in the end, I have to because there's, there's no other way forward. There's no other way of creating these people. Uh, and sometimes they're very difficult. Up, up on the wall there, there's a picture of the goddess Kali. You know, now she is the Hindu goddess of destruction and regeneration. She's kind of, kind of tough to become Kali in one's imagination. What was your entry point into something like Kali? How did you crack it? You usually go through a stage of complete despair. Writing good plays is dangerous. Uh, there have been occasions in which it made me very ill. I almost died of pneumonia writing Light in the Village. There's a lot of psychic risks involved. Joe Clifford, everybody. Uh, her show, her version of Jekyll and Hyde uh, is currently touring the UK. You can find more information about that online. Uh, you can go and visit her website, teatrodomundo.com, to find out a lot about Joe's work uh, and other projects she's working on. Um, and also, don't forget, 2015, part of the Made in Scotland program, The Gospel According to Jesus, Queen of Heaven, uh, will be in Edinburgh throughout the entirety of August. Do go and see it. It's totally worth it. People are going to be talking about this show a lot this summer. And we're going to leave you today um, with a little extra audio feature. Recently in Edinburgh, David Robinson, who is uh, the, the lead critic uh, and editor uh, of the book section for The Scotsman, uh, retired. And we attended his retirement party. And, and, and we wanted to talk a little bit with people, not only about David's career, but about critical culture in general. Um, the review section is changing in The Scotsman. Um, the way we review and, and, and the critical culture throughout the world is changing with, as newspapers get smaller, as things move online. So we talked to a few people uh, who are out celebrating the life and career uh, of David Robinson. Uh, we're going to start this with Leslie Gleister. We're at Summer Hall um, in the, the cavernous depths, or the heights, cavernous heights of Summer Hall <laughs> in the dissecting room at David Robinson's retirement party. 
David Robinson was the literary editor of The Scotsman, a wonderful, warm, generous presence there, which he was so missed among critics in Edinburgh. And, and as a writer, I mean, what, is, what do you feel like the role of the critic is? Has it helped, has it changed the way you look at your own work in, in any way? Or do, do you recognize critics? Do you, do you pay it? Do you read them? I do. I wish I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to have the strength not to do that. But I can't bear the, think of the thought of people saying things <laughs> and other people knowing what they're saying when I don't know. I don't think David's being replaced in terms of literary editors. And that seems like a worrying thing to me. Is that something that you, we should be concerned uh, about as a, as a nation, that one of our leading newspapers is kind of not employing a literary editor? Absolutely. It seems a terribly retrograde step, doesn't it? Because you think that we need more. We need more critics, more literary editors, more intelligent, educated, warm, generous spirits in our literary world. Not less, not fewer. Hi, I'm Francis Bickmore, and I'm publishing director of Canongate Books. Well, there's certain critics you have a kind of comative relationship with and certain critics that you feel um, the opposite, almost a kind of symbiotic relationship where you're... You know, you're working for the same goal, which is to, to have good conversations about good writing. And David is absolutely in that camp. He is one of the greatest champions of, um, of quality criticism, of bringing out and, and letting the world know about the exciting and important works um, that are being published each year. And, and God knows we need that with, with so many hundreds of thousands of books published. Everyone needs a filter. And David was a great filter. As book pages get shrunk, especially in the newspapers, what is, what's, what's your sense as a publisher for how, that, how does that affect the industry and, and actually the lives of writers and editors like yourself? Well, the key change seems to be this, the movement from, of the conversation away from the literary pages to some extent and into, into cyberspace. And to me, that, that's not a diminishing, it's an expanding. Um, but the role of critic is undefined in cyberspace and you get a lot of amateur critics and someone like David or Stuart Kelly are professional critics um, they know the canon they know literature inside out and they are they can speak from a position of authority in relation to other books and and that isn't always the case with your bloggers or your your enthusiasts um, now I think there's a space for both and I'm just you know I'm keen to see where where David lands and also um, you know where the the high highbrow conversation about books uh, finds uh, a home in cyberspace because I know it will just as the lowbrow and the midbrow and the you know monobrow will all find a, a place on the internet but yeah I guess that's that the, the difference is that the difference is between like anybody being able to talk about what their favorite book is or what their favorite film is and then somebody who actually has has a broader perspective about the importance of the work yeah I mean I've I'm I'm always uh, you know I, I hesitate to say that that the one person's opinion is more valid than anyone else's and, and I'm, I'm all about um, people reading what they want to read and not feeling pa- like they're stupid because they want to read Fifty Shades of Grey or whatever you know people want to read books and they love reading books that's the most important thing but, but I think um, the, the perspective he offers of um, an awareness of all the other, the other books that are coming out an awareness of the last 50 years of publishing and the conversation that's happening in between books and, and across a writer's career between their first debut and their seventh novel. Um, someone like David is, a great, is a great, um, in a great position to really explore that and explain that. And, and that just enriches your reading experience because you, you, know, you can think about what you're reading more and, and where it's come from. I'm Claire Stewart from Electric Bookshop. David's been really important in a lot of 
projects and books that I've been involved in and been, you know, given a lot of coverage to a lot of really good Scottish literature over the years. And, you know, I've always followed his work in The Scotsman and he's a really important part of the ecology of literature in, in Scotland. And that, and that ecology is, it feels like it's changing tonight. Do you think we lose something by not having a critical culture or a critical section of the newspaper? Do you think that that's a, an important public space to, to hold conversations? It certainly is still a very legitimate and respected place for, for criticism. And it certainly, although newspapers are sadly on the decline, it, they're still a very important place for a lot of people to find out what's going on and keep connected to culture and, and find out what, what's new and also what, what they what they themselves might like to read and what's relatable to their own lives so you know and the, the internet is, is absolutely rammed with coverage with reviews with criticism but it's a, a mass of information that can be quite hard for people to navigate and a lot of people especially the older generation don't use the internet in that way they still find these things in, in the newspapers and print journalism. It's interesting to say that because of course as part of the electric bookshop I mean you're looking forward, you're looking to the future and there are places for, for, for intelligent critique and stuff online? Well there are but it's I think it's a case of you know where do people find the content that relates to them and their experience and certainly geographically it's not the same you know in in Scotland we have our Scottish broadsheets and we have our Scottish local newspapers that give coverage to Scottish literature and Scottish local news and, and Scottish interest content and the internet is not regional in that way and and so it certainly will as things shift online it will certainly I think be more diffuse and more atomised the, the coverage of, of Scottish literature and, and, and the coverage of Scottish writing and there is a sort of peculiar attitude as well of you know that things in Scotland are, are, are somehow regional and of regional interests so there's a positive there in that the internet makes these things available on a wider scale but then again they're diffuse so you know if you're interested in reading about your history or local experience or, or or something that relates directly to your own culture and heritage, where will you find that? You know, maybe it's a case of, you know, more coverage but more diffusion of that of that. Yeah, you lose you lose kind of a local voice, I suppose, or a national voice even. Yeah, and and I mean the Scot the Scotsman is a I think is quite a you know distinct case as well because it has been such a well respected, long running arbiter of, of, of taste and quality in literature for, you know, hundreds of years that, that it's sort of, you know, it's, it's sad to see that that's, that, that's, that's not been replaced with anything by the Scotsman online, I guess. You know, that certainly hasn't been my experience anyway. There, have, there doesn't seem to be an increase in, in, in the Scotsman's online coverage of these things. They just seem to be, it seems to have faded away, sadly. I'm Jenny Brown and I'm a literary agent and I must have known David for probably maybe 20 years. Of course, you know, his tastes were literary. He also was quite Catholic in his tastes um, in, in terms of crime writing. He's a huge admiration for American writers and for young people's writing as well. So his pages really reflected that. They were a joy to read every Saturday. It seems like there should be an adversarial relationship you know, between authors and critics 
and agents and critics, basically everyone versus the critic. Uh, but it doesn't seem that way from just hanging out even just tonight. And I know that's not the, the feeling on the ground. And what is, what is that relationship? And why is, that, why is this one different? Maybe? Well, I think, first of all, we're in Scotland. And we're a small nation. And therefore, we all know each other. And we've all recognized over the years that we're going to get much better results if we're collaborative rather than being adversarial. That doesn't mean to say that real criticism can't take place, because it does. But I think uh, there's respect for what David has done and respect for the fact that he has championed literature, championed books in an environment which has become increasingly difficult in the print media for literature. And we've looked at him as being a kind of an ambassador for words, a role he's played extremely well. Yeah, that's interesting. That's not just it's just not just about like criticizing or critiquing work, but it's actually being having has an active role in engagement with the wider public, I guess. Yeah, like what I've really enjoyed seeing is David increasingly taking up uh, a role at literature festivals for chairing because he's he's encyclopedic knowledge now about uh, the world of books, and it's fantastic to see him employing that when he's interviewing writers on stage. Now, now I know like David himself is irreplaceable, uh, but it's surprising to me, at least, that, 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 that to my understanding, the Scotsman is not going to be continuing that post of literary editor and that, that things are going to get slimmer there in terms of literary criticism. Is, is, is that your understanding as well, and is that something that people should be worried about, and where can, should people be looking yeah. for, for this kind of thing in the future? Where do we get our information about books? I mean, there will be, I'm sure, books pages to come in the Times, in the Guardian, in the Telegraph, in the Daily Mail. But where do we find our information about books from Scotland? Where do Scottish publishers go to find uh, coverage for their debut writers? And how do those debut writers ever get a toehold in this literature world without getting reviews? And it's so important. And yes, there's Amazon Vine. Yes, there's uh, blogging and other forms of social media, which are all, have all got their place. But it's going to take us an awful long time before we give up our loyalty to the quotes from book reviews. And as an agent, I know that all too well. Yeah, you need you need those guys yeah. to, if nothing else, fill up the, the sp- first couple of pages of your books. Oh, yeah, absolutely. What else are we going to do with those two first two pages? But no, no, it's true. You know, where, where do people... And Scotsman's always been a very well-respected newspaper in terms of its book coverage. And also, you, wrote, you, you read a little note from Ali Smith, which was really sweet. And I, again, I'm thinking, oh, that, she's busy. She's got a lot of things to do, and then writing up to, to just say thank you and to say to, to send support was was really sweet, sweet of her. And I, I was again su- yeah. just surprised that a writer who would do that for somebody who's, you know, in some ways critiquing their work and looking at their work in such a serious manner. But isn't that brilliant that writers um, don't forget those critics who have encouraged them? from an early stage, which obviously Ali is, is recognised in David, Candy McWilliam did as well. And tonight we've got writers of the likes of Andy Gregg, Ian Rankin's here, Sandy Bingold-Smith obviously has been speaking, and a whole range of other writers who all recognised the fact that they had perhaps their first ever review in The Scotsman, thanks to David.
Thanks to Jenny Brown there, uh, and thanks again to everybody who took part in, in this segment. Uh, uh, Francis Bickmore from Canongate, Claire Stewart from the Electric Bookshop, and of course, Leslie Glaster. That's all for this episode of Culture Laser. We'll be back in your ears very, very soon. Until then, goodbye for now.